Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. Today is all about FDA's free communications and what you need to know to effectively manage them. So the types of submissions that we are going to discuss today is the pre-submission program, the breakthrough device designation, the Safer Technologies Program, or STEP, and the relevant guidance documents associated with each of these. Now, my presentations usually kind of build in a stepwise fashion. So go ahead and put your your questions in the Q&A. And then if I don't answer them on the subsequent slides, I'll cover all the questions at the end. And I think we've got a small enough audience and might even be able to open it up for a live discussion. So we'll start with the pre-submissions. The pre-submissions have been increasing in popularity over the years. Um, unfortunately, FDA hasn't published the data since 2020, but they have really skyrocketed under COVID. So I wouldn't be surprised when they get caught up on their data publishing that these numbers uh, would have easily doubled. And you can see here, and we'll talk about the different types of pre-submissions in a moment, but that of a little over 30,000, uh, 3,000 pre-submissions in the year 2020, uh, about half of those resulted in an actual meeting with the FDA. You really don't need to pass up the power of a pre-sub, uh, partially because this is, regardless of if you're new, novel, or qualified for one of the other free options with the FDA means to communicate. Uh, regardless, that this is a way to start a conversation with FDA and ask them any things that might present unique challenges about your product, get their thoughts on protocols and, and other things. It's often called a Q-sub, and this is going to, uh, again, help start those conversations with FDA and help align with the FDA before you get in a submission and you find out that you are not aligned with FDA and you have to withdraw either withdraw your submission or be, be deemed not substantially equivalent. So it's an opportunity to discuss specific questions uh, related to the regulatory process. It's a great way to collaborate with the FDA and make them a little bit more of your problem solving team in terms of how to navigate their expectations. You know, if any of you have have new technology, especially in the areas of digital health software, there are areas where the FDA's current thinking, there's really not a lot published about it because it's a little bit more cutting edge. And it, so a pre-sub can be one of the only ways to really get a handle around what FDA's position is going to be. And then by following this process, because you've engage the FDA as more of a collaborator, it's going to improve the likelihood that you're going to have a successful 510K. So it's particularly important if you have anything that's going to be deemed like a first of its kind. It is non-binding on the part of the FDA, but it does create this history and this paper trail. And the FDA does consider their positions and what they told you during the 510K review process. Unless anything changes, like maybe there is a, a significant period of time, you know, a year, to, uh, over a year, you know, two to five years or, or longer after you do a pre-submission, FDA will usually honor 
its discussions that were part of that pre-sale process. They don't when there's new technology, new recognized consensus standards, or maybe a new predicate out that wasn't at their prior discussion. So one of the most important things to keep in mind about a pre-submission is that you need to describe, this is really like telling a story, a nonfiction story, but you have to be very careful and purposeful in the way you build that story. And the, the purpose of a pre-submission is to focus on really to narrow it down to just three to four substantial topics where you can ask questions about complex topics in, in multiple subparts is one way to break this down to kind of keep it to uh, this three to four substantial topics. These need to be straightforward questions and they can be addressed without an in-depth review and do not introduce significant new topics from one to the other. And you don't need to include the kitchen sink in your submission, but you have to balance that because you have to have sufficient background for the FDA to understand your technology, but you don't want to kill them with details either. So the basic chapters of a pre-submission are a cover letter, the background information that entails your existing landscape, your device description, your bench and your animal testing protocols, your clinical study protocols, and then that you set all of that as context for posing your specific questions to the FDA. And what's important here is that you are the expert in your own product not the FDA. So if you are putting something in your into the submission and you're wondering, do I really need it? Ask what purpose and why you're including it. What do you intend for it to serve? So common topics for a, a pre-submission are performance testing. Um, this is your overall test strategy that you would ask questions about. Your regulatory strategy in terms of predicates, any challenges that the FDA sees on your way to approval or clearance, your clinical designation, if you're in a significant risk, non-significant risk, your regulatory pathway, they agree with your submission strategy, like if you're going to be a 510K or de novo, then another purpose is just for familiarization to find out how much FDA is familiar with the types of technologies that are going to be involved in your submission. So the art of writing successful questions, you really need to focus your efforts on issues mo most relevant to moving a project forward. It needs to be clear and objective. Don't be in love with your own science because I guarantee you the FDA uh, won't, won't be, at least not at first. Uh, they'll have to You'll have to cast that story and paint that picture for them, um, but in an objective way. There has to be sufficient background information and supporting documents. Avoid that extraneous in information. And then you ultimately have to guide the FDA to your desired out outcome. So you also have to be cognizant of the power of the way you ask the question. You don't request formally regu a formal regulatory determination. Is my device a class this per regulation that? Unless you have novel features or specific predicate uh, questions. So how that question would evolve 
is does FDA agree that the predicate device and the reference device identified may be appropriate for the demonstration of substantial equivalence in the 510K? And then do request clarification on the path to market if it's not straightforward. Does the agency agree that the proposed device as described exceeds the exemption for a particular product code? And then if yes, does the agency agree with the, the predicate selection? And so it's important to kind of phrase these in a way that the FDA can concur or dissent and then ask them if yes or if no, a second part to the question or ask if they don't concur, why not? On that vein, you do include your protocols and ask questions about a proposed protocol, but you do not ask for FDA to review any data. They will not review data and they also won't review a multitude of protocols all at one time. So the way to phrase this would be, does FDA agree that the non-clinical studies conducted are sufficient to support a 510K uh, submission for the proposed device? Whereas the, the converse of that that would be bad would be, does FDA agree that my data is sufficient for submission? Do ask specific questions of the suitability of your study design, but don't ask uh, the FDA, their thoughts on what your study should be, you need to come with that already as a formal outlined plan. So the way to ask that would be, does FDA agree that the statistical sample size calculation method for the statistical analysis plan is appropriate for the proposed clinical study? You do not want to say, how many subjects should my clinical study have? So there are three different types of feedback that you can get from a pre-submission. You can get written feedback only. You can have a teleconference or you can have an in-person meeting, uh, at least pre-COVID to my knowledge, they have not opened up in-person meetings again. And due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the pre-submissions are taken 120 days as opposed to the normal 60 to 75 days at least um, in the specific review divisions that were impacted by COVID. Obviously, IVDs, uh, cardiovascular and respiratory health, all still a little bit in the quagmire of uh, pre-submissions. So that really leaves us with teleconference versus written feedback only. With a teleconference, the pros is that you can dive deeper into FDA's thinking. What happens when you get a teleconference as opposed to, uh, or a written feedback only, as opposed to a teleconference, is that the FDA, it usually right within their time frame, gives you back a very extensive question set, uh, answers to your question set. They answer the questions in more detail, but they will also answer questions that are maybe that you didn't even ask. They would they will go into more detail and they will say, maybe you should think about this or FDA has concerns about that or there is a guidance document you need to be aware of. So a lot of times the information you get in written feedback only can be more comprehensive in nature. Whereas at a 
it teleconference, they give you a limited set of written feedback only, and then they, they suggest a time for a, a one hour meeting. Well, I have never seen the response for a teleconference come back with answers to more questions than you asked, much less other helpful information for consideration. So, and it's it can be very difficult to manage that teleconference. You get one hour on the dot. The FDA will have probably a half dozen or more people there, as will you. You are responsible for taking the meeting minutes and turning them into the FDA afterwards. So those are kind of the compare and contrast. So if let's look at how these the timeline works here. So if FDA gets your e-copy of your submission, by day 30, they have to give you a refuse to accept response. By day between 30 and 40, if they are going to schedule a meeting with you for that teleconference, they have to do that in this time frame. By day 70, give you either the feedback that is to be discussed in your teleconference or your full written feedback by day 70. Day 75, if you're going to have a teleconference, you meet with the FDA. Your meeting notes are due by day 90 to be provided by the FDA. And by day 120, the FDA has to return those uh, meeting minutes to you with any revisions it is going to suggest. Meeting checklist, you need to prepare a slide deck to drive the meeting if you're going to have a teleconference. Ahead of time, you need to talk about who's going to take the meeting notes. It's important to take really good and thorough notes, and this needs to be a single person dedicated to it that is not doing the talking. You need to decide who's going to drive your presentation. The content should be limited, and it should be well-practiced. You should not repeat anything that you said, like in the content of the presentation that you said in the pre-sub. So you need to be able to listen and compromise with the FDA and you have 60 minutes on the dot. Again, your meeting minutes have to be returned within 15 days. You are not allowed to record it. Your meeting should be a summary and not a transcript of the meeting. And it's kind of funny, I do know somebody who recorded their, their pre-sub meeting even though they weren't supposed to, and they gave you know, FDA basically a, a paraphrase phrase meeting notes and the FDA is like, oh no, that's not what we said. And it just really made the, the customer crazy. So that's another part of the problem with a, a teleconference is that oftentimes you think that you're understanding what the FDA says or where they're going with something. Whereas in the written feedback, it is their own words in black and white, not just them agreeing to your interpretation of what they said. And then your, your meeting minutes have to go in as an amendment to that pre-submission uh, within 15 days. If you did a slide presentation, you have to include that. And then you have to turn them in in a Word version so FDA can give you feedback via track changes. And then you've got one round to finalize and turn them back in with the FDA. Remember, don't repeat your pre-submission content. FDA has already read it. If you, you should be in your teleconference discussing clarifying points to their responses or providing new content where you think something was misinterpreted or not well understood because of, of lack of clarity. 
you again only have set 60 minutes so don't waste their time with pleasantries or or repeating yourself don't expect fda to consult and tell you exactly what they want or how to do it don't bring up new topics or questions again this is just for clarity of things they have already told you and responded to and then don't let the person who is the inventor of the technology talk too much because they can really derail the purpose of the discussion about about fda specific feedback and get get off on a tangent about how they came to invent the device or how great it is or any number of things don't under communicate so not submitting a pre-sub at all when you should have so it's kind of the whole do you want forgiveness or permission it's a good way to make your 510k submission unsuccessful don't over communicate and submit too too many unusable pre-subs because you don't like the FDA's opinion, it, which brings us to our next one. Don't cover your ears and not listen to what the FDA has to say about your product and continue with your submission because likely they are not going to change their opinion between that pre-sub and the submission unless you have made some changes or, or something else for consideration that invalidates their um, recommendations. But even at that, you have to address what that is. So don't assume that your competitors have got their, their due diligence for their regular, uh, regulatory strategy correct. And obviously don't lobby or bribe the FDA. Uh, believe it or not, I, I did have a client that was trying to get a novel surgical mask approved and their board of directors had some connections within the administration and they called the Secretary of State to call the HHS to call the FDA and it was it was just a fiasco and at the end of the day all they did was make FDA mad and nothing they did was uh, successful in changing the FDA's opinion about this product and public health. The FDA will not forget that it has had a conversation with you so don't try to disregard previous submissions. Don't try to submit old data. Don't think that they won't remember. I have had uh, several times where I got the document dumped from a new client and they had submission after submission over the course of 10 years with FDA. And they are like, well, the FDA um, won't remember those submissions. And sure enough, FDA went back to their um, all of those original pre-submissions and said it, that, hey, we don't see where you've addressed this, that, or the other thing, and all of our concerns still stand. So the pre-submission is one type of, of what's called a Q-submission. Another type of Q-submission is the breakthrough device pathway. Now, the breakthrough is important if your device is novel and for to specifically meet the the consideration of is it a novel technology in the context of breakthrough designation is does it have the potential to lead to a clinical improvement in the diagnosis cure treatment prevention or mitigation of specifically life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating disease or condition. 
So remember that life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating because that's an important, um, we'll talk about that in, in a moment about how that's, that sets breakthrough aside. So here's an example of something that would meet that definition where you, you've got not novel and novel of what appears to be a very similar device. So product one is a transcatheter heart valve that's delivered transcutaneously. Product one is delivered through open heart surgery. This is not novel. There are several transcatheter heart valves on the market that are delivered in this manner. But option two, product two, it does not require open heart surgery. So this overall decreases the risks of the procedure and this would be novel because this technology has the potential to provide clinically meaningful advantage in the patient population that has few options outside of uh, open heart surgery. If we look at uh, the benefits of the breakthrough device, it is a way to streamline your market clearance and approval process uh, for certain medical devices. It is a two-step process with two main criteria you have to meet. Um, the process began in 2015, and it's really gaining in popularity over the years. And we'll take some a look at some numbers. So uh, strategic advantages of the breakthrough it is going to increase communications with the FDA and make them to where they're, they're not quite as formal as they, as like, for instance, say, you know, the pre-sub like we just discussed is, is one way to formally ask questions and get a formal response. But if you have a breakthrough, FDA is supposed to be faster and more flexible in its communications and require less uh, formal methods of communicating to where they can do it maybe via email or other types of discussions. Because the whole point of the program is to provide a high-level engagement between the FDA and innovators where there are no good alternatives for patients. For the longest time, is the FDA did not really publish numbers about the, the breakthrough device designation. We, we, and even with the numbers that they are publishing, we don't know how many total were submitted. But we can tell since 2015, 693 were granted designation. And of that 693, so this is over that seven-year process, only 693 people got a breakthrough granted. These are the types of products that, that make up that 693. And then... They, this is the part that is, is kind of new, newly published. They started publishing data in April. They actually just updated this, uh, in the last few weeks. And so they're up to 54. So of that 693, only 54 have been cleared in the CDRH over that entire seven year period. So you can see that while it's increasing in popularity, it is it's still uh, fairly difficult to get one, not only get the designation itself, but then to fully complete the process after, after that for a commercially viable product. 
you do not necessarily have to prove that your breakthrough device is more effective than other products, just that uh, unless you want to be making a claim in your commercialization, in which case your, your studies or trials have to include both safety and effectiveness or, or more effective. Why this is important is because FDA may accept a greater extent of an uncertainty in the benefit risk profile because of the type of life threatening or debilitating alternatives that are out there in compared to what your product um, holds. So maybe open heart surgery might be more effective, but your risk profile is so much higher with open heart surgery that they're willing to take more uncertainty. So let's look at what that might look like in terms of the impact on your submission. So say you have a, a cardiac implant and a study is going to re be required under normal circumstances. It's going to involve hundreds of, of patients and you have to follow them over a long period of time prior to FDA giving you approval or clearance. However, if you qualify for breakthrough and you make a commitment uh, to the FDA that you're going to continue researching these devices after they're authorized, we can take that same cardiac impact plant have an abbreviated clinical trial, get our initial approval and clearance with our commitment that we are going to continue and do our larger study over time after in, in a post-market fashion. So if we look at the criteria to determine eligibility, the first criteria, and this one has to be um, met uh, no matter what, is that the device provides for more effective treatment or diagnosis of life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating diseases. We just talked, we've been talking about this a lot. You have to be very critical of yourself and your product in terms of defining life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating. And so that's number one. And then you have to couple it with at least one of the following. It has to represent a breakthrough technology. And remember, we talked about that definition. There has to be no approved or cleared alternatives. It offers significant advantages over existing approved or cleared alternatives. Or the device availability is in the best interest of the patient. And so both of number one and one of number two need to be met. The FDA can also remove your designation if your device may no longer be eligible, say there is a predicate or a similar device or technology or some other new treatment that comes out for a particular uh, disease state uh, that might nullify the criteria for which you got your designation, that information submitted contained a, un, a false statement or admitted um, relevant material. If we look at at this process, the, the flow for this process. So of course you apply, uh, you meet the criteria one and two. They, within 30 days, they're supposed to tell you if they need additional information. They're supposed to give you a decision letter within 60 days. And it is, it, if they grant you the submission or grant you the designation, 
they you proceed with whatever your proposed submission path. Now, there have been devices that came to market underneath Breakthrough uh, as a 510K, but largely Breakthrough is intended to be de novo or PMA because it's intended to be novel and it's intended for uh, to provide solutions where they really don't exist. If it's if the breakthrough is declined, that does not preclude you from following a normal submission pathway. And then you should just adapt your strategy based off of the feedback that you receive from your breakthrough. Breakthrough device or the QSUB must contain the, the type of expedited feedback that you want, primarily as your method of communication. So you can, you're eligible for sprint discussions, data development plans, clinical protocol agreements. And then there, there are uh, miscellaneous catch-all other types of conversations with the, the FDA. But all of these have different types of strategic advantages that you can ask for with the FDA. What else do you get with the Breakthrough Device Program? Well, you're supposed to get regular status updates during the course of submission, everywhere from email to teleconference to face-to-face -face meetings. These are some of the same mechanisms as pre-submissions, but they are not, they're supposed to be faster and less formal. They're, the intent is for more timely interaction and feedback from the FDA. So it's a potential shorter time to market um, than standard reviews, but we see not many companies have made it all the way through. So if we look at uh, another example that, that the breakthrough device is that we have the use of uh, cartilage uh, osteochronical defects, survived and purified from inorganic coral exoskeleton, this is for arthritic and non-arthritic joints. It is indicated for the treatment of uh, knee joint lesions, which is the current standard of care in microfraction and debridement. And so that, that's what it is supposed to replace. And then you have to under, be sure that you include all of your previous communications with FDA. So this is the example that this is the type of product that we're about to put through the checklist. So we already have uh, talked about we have to meet criterion one period. And so we, we've established this can be ir irreversibly debilitating condition. Now for criterion two, we go through the checklist and we have got data to support how we can meet 2A, 2B, and to see, but we're unable to um, get the, the right about amount of data to support D. So it is recommended that even though you technically only have to prove a single criterion, that you prove as many as you can uh, within your submission, just in case FDA doesn't agree with one, one of the ones that you're able to make a case for. So where can you find more information on devices? Well, once one of the breakthrough devices gets their approval or clearance, you can go into that FDA database. You can see their approval orders, the summaries, labeling, the studies that they have to do uh, after the fact. 
So if you have a product that that could be remotely similar to something that those 55 that have made it through 54, 55, you know, be sure to, to check out their clearances. And then that also might help you know if what size of study, what type of non-clinical testing and et cetera, FDA might expect to see on your product and what compromises they made otherwise for other people. So I got my breakthrough designation. Can you still make changes? Uh, you can, but you have to communicate those uh, significant changes to the FDA and the FDA um, may determine that your designation no longer applies to your device. So you might need to either prepare a new or just go into a standard review. If you do not get a breakthrough or so again, FDA, if you say enter, enter the breakthrough device and they disagree with your designation that, that you do not meet the criteria for designation, then you've got some alternatives. Either you can go into your standard type of filing or you can go into the Safer Technologies program. So let's take a look at the Safer Technologies program. This is, uh, the, the program is just that it's supposed to be significant safety benefits but for non-life-threatening and reasonably reversible, excuse me, uh, conditions that are less serious than those for the breakthrough program. And so the benefits are similar. You should have a interactive and timely communication with the sponsor during the device development and throughout that process. And just like the breakthrough devices, it's a two-step process. But it's similar, uh, it's similar but different, kind of like fraternal twins. So let's look at the criteria. So first, now you can see that, that this first criteria, which has to be met, period, just like the breakthrough. But now it says it, it's a more effective treatment for less serious, life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating conditions. So that less serious, more effective and less serious is important but you have to meet uh, two criteria. And the way this compares to uh, the breakthrough versus the step is that it has to be reasonably expected to significantly improve the safety of currently available treatments that are less serious compared to the life-threatening and irreversibly uh, debilitating. It's similar, you, they're both a type of pre-submission. Um, High-level process flows the same, so it's kind of like two peas in a pod here. Where the breakthrough differs is that you are eligible to have a clinical protocol agreement discussion underneath pro a breakthrough, and that's not a method of communication for a step. So very similar programs, but it's important to know the difference um, so that you can be efficient and apply to the one that really beats fits your process best. All three of these submission types require you to prepare an e-copy. The e-copy is, uh, is, a, is a method of preparing electronic submission, but it's very specific in the format, naming con conventions. They have some tools, uh, e-copy tool and a validation module, so you can check it online, but these tools are finicky at best. 
So it's, it's really important to understand this process. If you can't use a tool, make sure that you are aware of the naming conventions, the way you have to format the attachments, file sizes, and last but not least, you need Ac Adobe Acrobat PD version, PDF version 11 or below. It will make you crazy to interact with some of the FDA software because it will make you like go like back versions of Adobe and Java to things that don't seem like they exist anymore. You put all this on a flash drive and you mail it to the post office. It is important to mail it. Uh, I, I always overnight or second day mine, but do something with uh, tracking. The FDA is notorious, even if you have tracking for losing these. And even if you have tracking, say, sometimes saying that you didn't actually send them, that you sent them an empty folder because they dropped it on the floor or something, even though you can send them pictures that you have the friendly UPS guy dropping the, the flash drive right in the overnight envelope. You can go to my website and get a regulatory pathway assessment, which is we will uh, map out what we think the pathway is for your product. And we will also assess if we think you should do a pre-submission, a breakthrough, or a step if, if you qualify. We also help with business market assessments to help you understand uh, the, the different cost and, and potential sales uh, associated with going into to different geographies. So be sure to go and get those tools on my website. And then we help with things throughout your, your product life cycle. Um, and so just uh, keep me in mind and uh, give me a shout, you know, whether you have regulatory or quality pre-commercialization, post-commercialization, we can help with a lot of things. I have a couple of questions I'll start off with. I don't understand what is meant by device availability is the best in the best interest of the patient. That was in the breakthrough right. technology. What does that exactly mean? Um, that one is usually associated with some sort of patient advocacy group where um, sometimes the FDA doesn't understand what the patients actually think about the, the the condition they have or the, the side effects that they're leave, living with or just their the patient understanding of their condition. And so it's not, there are circumstances in which patient advocacy groups got together and told FDA, hey, whatever you think this side effect that you're worried about that you won't allow me to have this device it's actually not as bad as what I'm living with, and it's a risk I'm willing to take. That was the the two examples I can think of off the top of my head. One is on the drug side with a drug to treat Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. The the patients got together and got a drug approved because it whatever the FDA was concerned about, they said what they weren't. And then the other one was one of the the gastric bypass surgeries where the person's like, I am literally less afraid of death than this particular condition that I'm living with. And it wasn't just about it. It was some other complication of some of the, the other treatment options. That helped a lot because I couldn't get my head around that. 
does anybody else have a question before I jump in with another question? Okay, so I have a couple questions about pre-submission. One is, it, are there certain types of devices or or drugs or, or certain types of uh, things that are better to get the written follow-up and better to have the the teleconference on? Or is it just maybe personal preference? For a lot of my customers, it is personal preference. For my professional preference, I always recommend the written feedback only. I just think it, it, it is so much more informative. And while they won't have a meeting, if you don't, if you have clarifying questions, most of the time the person responding to you will answer those. And if you have a teleconference, are consultants such as yourself allowed to participate or is it just? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And ask questions. I mean, not just sit in, but actually participate. Right. Okay. Yes. We can, we can drive the whole thing. And what I think is interesting um, about the, the customer preference on this is I'm finding it's a little personality driven. So the extroverts are always like nothing beats a, I want to say face to face, but you know what, a virtual call or, or virtual meeting and actually getting to have a conversation. Yeah. Well, then I would like the written feedback better. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Does any, anybody else have any other questions? Uh, I don't see anything else in the chat or the Q&A, but I believe you guys can unmute yourself if you do want to jump in. And if there's any other topics that you guys want to hear about, too, if you've been to my other ones, um, you know, let me know. We can coordinate something, you know, in the, if, if there's something that I haven't touched on. Generally speaking, Michelle, is it better the fewer claims you make or should you make as many claims as you feel are appropriate for what you're presenting? I don't know if that's clear. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And this is where you, you really need to understand how your marketing and sales team plans on positioning the product because I cannot tell you how many times I've gotten clearance for something. And then the very first thing that the F, that the marketing team wants to say, we can't support. And so you, you really need to do a thorough claims analysis of what you want to say and then look at how much work is it going to take to be able to make those assertions. Because you can't even say things like, better, faster, cheaper, saves time, like any of those, 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 those are, are claims too. Comparative claims where you're talking about a competitor, you have to be able to substantiate everything you say about your product. Um, and then certain claims might make the difference between you being eligible for a 510k and a de novo, which is a much harder regulatory path. And so I guess this is where presentations like this and consultants who do this day in and day out are, are really worth every amount of uh, time and, and effort and money resources that you put towards them. Uh, obviously, right. this is what you do, but. Right. Yeah, I am a little biased in concurring with you there. 
But if you don't involve the right consultant early enough um, in the process, you can get too far down the road and and have cost yourself a lot of time and money because you didn't realize the implications of of everything your sales or engineering or you know team was was recommending. And I saw one question pop up uh, in the Q and A from Chris Chen. It says, thank you for your presentation. Very useful. Can we ask, discuss about real world evidence? It, and it's kind of confusing uh, because the FDA is not very articulate in real world evidence versus real world data. Some can be both. Unfortunately, for like higher risk products, there's going to be a lot more sources of real of either. Um, real world data is uh, data that describes the health status or the delivery of healthcare routinely collected from a variety of sources. This can be like electronic health records, claims and billing, product and disease registries, in-home settings where some maybe data is being communicated. Um, and then the real world uh, data real world evidence so you've got both is is the definition of real world evidence is evidence of usage of personal benefits or risks of a medical device a product derived from the analysis of real world data so one kind of fuels the other and so um, you've got all of these data sources that are driving things like maybe how your trial is uh, structured or observational studies. Um, and then to further muddy the waters about what comes from where and the FDA has said diverse real world data sources were combined to generate real world evidence. But in my opinion, data does not, uh, Ram, randomized control trial make. Uh, Chris, I hope that answered your question or gave you more um, insight. Mitch has a question in the box that says, it's worth saying a few words about choice of regulatory pathway, 10, 510K, de novo, da, da, da. Yeah, so the, the 510K is based off of a paradigm known as substantial equivalence. Now, that doesn't mean that you are identical to um, a particular pro product that you're going to use for your predicate, but it means that whatever your differences are, they do not raise new questions of safety and effectiveness that can't be addressed some way in maybe uh, non-clinical performance testing or maybe a small clinical trial, whereas a, a de novo means that either you don't have a, a predicate device for substantial equivalence at all, or yours has new and novel enough features that it's going to require a, you can't make a substantial equivalence argument and you're going to require de novo instead of a 510K. And then a PMA is for the high risk class three devices. And, you know, unless, yeah, I, I, I personally don't do, they're so involved and they cost so much time and money. Um, I stick to 510Ks and de novos. All right. Thank you for that. 
uh, are most um, most of the uh, the PMAs are probably done through large corporations. Either large co corporations or very well funded startups. Okay. Yeah. And and if you you look at the the difference in size and scope, you know, a, the just a fee for a five ten k for small business is three thousand dollars. PMA the fee is ninety three thousand dollars. And so that order of magnitude for the fees alone will give you an idea of the order of magnitude different and the amount of data, performance, clinical trials, the, the, the length of the submission. The length of the submission in the old days used to be something like 33 ring binders worth of data and information compared to you know something that that now is maybe one to two thousand pages well that helped clarify that for me so thank you uh chris says if i if i have a device that is reasonably safe supposed to be a 510k but it just happened that uh it just happened to have that no predicate in the u.s but it is available in the eu uh would it be easy to get a 510k uh through so what happens, Chris, uh, he says, it would it be easy to get a 510K through de novo? So you will have to put in a de novo system if there is no uh, reasonable predicate in the United States. But what comes of the de novo process is that they classify your device usually into class two, and then the subsequent submissions are eligible to do normal 510Ks instead of a full de novo. I don't know if that answered it. But you know, one of the big things is that you you need to look in the product code database because it's not just do you have a reasonable predicate, but it's also does a product code exist. Thank you everyone for participating. Michelle, thank you. Um every time we have one of these, I've learned so much.